The work is so complex and challenging to meet the evolving needs of this population, look through that asset-based lens, and create a pathway for success for all of our students that I don't think one single person can do it alone. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact in our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. We all know that collaboration is really important in education and in other fields, but it can be really hard to do when teaching. Too often as a teacher, I found myself isolated in my classroom with my students, which is really where I wanted to be with my students, but I was too busy to ask for advice or seek help from others. And sometimes I was just too proud. I didn't want it to look like I didn't know what I was doing. As the years went by, it became more and more difficult for me to accept help and engage in collaboration when it was offered and even when it was expected. In short, I became reluctant to collaborate unless I felt completely safe and supported. That's why I was so excited about this episode of Highest Aspirations. We talk about this very issue with two people who I have a lot of respect for, Valentina Gonzalez and Dr. Andrea Honigsfeld. But before we get started with that amazing conversation, I want to let you know what's new on our EL community this week. So I'm looking at it right now at elevationeducation.com slash EL community, and there is a web a webinar with Dr. Jeff Swears on improving talk and math class. This was really well attended, and the folks who joined uh, said nothing but positive things about it. The feedback was really, really good, so check that out. We also have a white paper on how to honor students' language assets. That's a little bit of a longer piece. And then the next piece that I see here is improving processes for giving and receiving feedback. That's a pretty short blog post based on a podcast episode we did just two weeks ago with Dr. Esteban Hernandez. If you haven't listened to that one, um, do give it a listen. It's really good. He had some really great advice for giving and receiving feedback, which is also part of the topic today collaboration. Remember, you can access these free resources anytime by going to elevationeducation.com. Just click on the resources button on the top right of your screen. Once you're there, consider joining the community to get resources like these delivered to your inbox every week in our community brief. Here are some of the questions we will cover in this episode with our friends Valentina Gonzalez and Andrea Honigsfeld, who have been on the podcast a few times now, both of them. How can we support or encourage reluctant colleagues to increase collaboration in order to support multilingual learners? How can we help educators unlearn the often negative perceptions of dreaded observations by administrators and fellow teachers so they can collaborate more effectively? Do schools that have effective collaborative practices in place retain and recruit more teachers? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Andrea Honigsfeld and Valentina Gonzalez. Both of their bios are available on our show notes and in the associated blog post at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. I hope you enjoy our conversation with our repeat guests, Andrea and Valentina. Valentina Gonzalez and Andrea Honigsfeld, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. Frequent contributors, it's great to see you both again. Thank you, Steve. I'm really excited to be back and so excited to talk with Andrea also. And I'm very, very happy to join you and to be with Valentina again for this conversation about collaboration. Okay, so this is going to be a great one. Uh, this I this chapter of this co-edited volume, which is a different kind of book than than you all have written before, 
um, was really inspirational to me, so much so that my wife, who's a teacher, was dealing with some of the issues that are brought up here. And I said, you need to read this. And literally right before we started this interview, I had to go get the book from her nightstand because she had borrowed it. Um, so it's it's something that I'm, I've not only shared with the sort of the Yale community, but also personally, which I'm excited about. So let's let's set the stage. Um, I want to we're, we're kind of bringing up something that I think is often avoided or ignored, and that is that reluctance exists in teaching, right? And especially in co-teaching situations and collaborations. And this is one of the first points you make in the chapter, which I really appreciate. Um, give us a to start off. Give us a few reasons why it exists, you think, and why it's so important for us to understand that it does exist. Well, I, I appreciate that you say that it's something that we don't often talk about, that reluctancy. And I think that sometimes we as educators are reluctant to collaborate or work with other people because of, in all honesty, various reasons. But sometimes we have negative experiences of working with people. Mm -hmm. um, and other times it can be just like perceived ideas about collaboration. Um, it may be that we think that collaboration is means that there's going to be more work for us. It may be that we think that collaboration means um, that we have different uh, ways of working together. We're going to have to share space or share share our things and we we don't like sharing. It, it could be that um, we have mindsets about collaboration and those are old mindsets that we've mm -hmm. formed throughout years of working and it's it's hard to change mindsets um and reframing those mindsets takes a lot of work it takes a lot of uh it takes a lot of support also and it doesn't mean just we have it doesn't mean uh, one way of, you know, saying, okay, well, collaboration means this, this is what collaboration is going to look like. Reframing the idea of collaboration includes so many different components. It includes the idea of like this vision of what collaboration is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And it also includes the support of administration and support of our colleagues, the tools that we're going to need to collaborate personally and professionally, as well as the resources, the planning tools, um, whether it be resources for our classroom. There's so much that we need in order to change the mindset that we may have, this image that we have of collaboration versus the reality of collaboration. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why we might be reluctant or we might see teachers or educators who are reluctant. And we have to think about, you know, what, what could be causing that. And actually recently, um, the other editor, Maria G. Dove, um, she she explained that sometimes teachers are reluctant because they don't know what you have to add to their instruction. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a really big aha moment, because if I'm going to collaborate with you, I need to know 
what are you going to add to this? Because I'm doing great things already. So how are you going to add value to my practice? I don't, I, I'm doing great things. So even amazing educators can be reluctant with collaborative practices. And that was a big aha moment for me. Well, if I could add maybe a very different perspective, looking at research, especially Hofstede, who is a Dutch, who was a Dutch uh, social psychologist, cultural dimensions theory could also offer one possible explanation. And that is when um, this re researcher, this theorist examined cultures and cultural values from around the world, he found that some cultures are more individualistic mm -hmm. and other cultures are more collectivistic. He also examined um, uncertainty avoidance. That's a very interesting dimension of cultural values or power distance. That's examining what are the norms when it comes to hierarchies in society. So when I think about being born and raised and educated and also becoming a teacher in Hungary first before I came to the United States, and I know Valentina, you also have international roots and connections. So very different cultural norms mm -hmm. lived in the teacher's lounge in Hungary, collaborating, supporting each other, helping, asking questions, showing your vulnerability. Now we're citing Brene Brown as well. So these different cultural norms, what is expected in the United States to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and to be successful individually yeah. could have, I'm not saying that there is a direct causality here, but it could have some kind of connection to feeling reluctant or shying away from or not really jumping right into collaborative practices. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I appreciate both of your perspectives. Uh, and I think the the headline here is it's, it's, it's really hard for a variety of reasons, many of which you just outlined. There's a cultural aspect. There's that research backing. I love the idea. I'm not sure I love where we are with it, but I love the idea of the individualist versus the collectivist, something I heard a lot about and read a lot about over the course of the pandemic and how different countries responded in different ways. Um and then just the idea of like the proud educator who's doing a really good job on their own. And then there's certainly the new educator who feels like they should know everything and they, it's hard for them to ask. And so the reluctance comes from that. And so then the question becomes, all right, well, how do we, how do we do it? How do we set it up? How do we break down these barriers or sort of um, this kind of muscle memory of working alone and in silos, which is very prevalent in education in my experience. So one of the strategies that you recommend in the, in the chapter is finding a way in to promote collaboration. Um, but you also recognize that, and I'll quote this, and this is really important. When initiatives come and go, educators can become jaded. In education, no one has time for one more thing to do. I cannot count on, I cannot count, I don't think, the amount of times that I became jaded as a teacher and just said, well, this is going to go just like the next thing, you know, and and it's not important to me in my class. And I suppose this could be one of those things. I had experience with that as a teacher, as a PD leader, and certainly my work in Elevation as well. So my question is, what steps would you recommend educators take to convince their reluctant colleagues like me at one time um, that collaborating specifically to support multilingual learners isn't just one more thing to do like the so many of the initiatives that we roll out every year? I, I First of all, we have to recognize that collaboration, collaborative practices, they aren't an in initiative. And we have to think about reframing the practices 
we aren't doing something new here. We, we're just changing the way we look at the work we're already doing. We're all already doing this work. We're all already working so hard. And the goal is the same. We all want our students to be successful. But how can we work together so that we're not working all working so hard, but we're sharing this workload for the same common goal. And so I think it's just reframing the practices. I think about like an old picture frame, like the one I have behind me right now. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's actually needlepoint, but the frame is old and I wanna make it more modern to fit the style of my home now. So I just need to go and reframe it. Yeah. There, there's nothing wrong with the picture inside. I just need to reframe it so it fits what's happening in the current setting. And I think that's where we have to kind of work towards the work we do in our school system. What we did before is not going to work with the students and the global society that we have today. We have all of these amazing educators, staff, family members, support everyone. And we're all trying to do the overarching goal of, of creating students who, um, who are smart and think and mm -hmm. can do all these great things. Let's work together so that we're all achieving that same goal and not working so hard individually. I can't help but think about that proverb, many hands make work light. I'm, I'm practicing my English right now. So is that how it goes, Steve? So that's the it? gist of it. I don't know that I know the exact expression, but I do many hands. Yeah, something like that. Definitely many hands. <laughs> many hands is in there, many hands. So that is one possible entry point I have found in, in my work with teachers directly and administrators or shifting cultures and beliefs that you have to think about how the work is so complex and challenging to meet the evolving needs of this population, look through that asset-based lens and create a pathway for success for all of our students that I don't think one single person can do it alone. Even if they claim that they can mm -hmm. do it alone, I have never met one teacher who says, sure, just I alone can teach and support and reach every single child, every family. So when we combine our expertise and John Hattie's work, I keep citing research today. I guess that's going to be one of my roles here. That's but, okay. Yeah, I love that. That's okay, right? So that, that it is really grounded in practitioner knowledge and Valentina brings so much of that and is able to express it so powerfully. But when we can pair that practitioner knowledge with evidence from research, then it's the best of both worlds because 100%. we know that we are sending a clear message. How, in this case, collective teacher efficacy, collaborative expertise, as documented by John Hattie's work, is a critical dimension of um, impact on student learning, of successful impact on student learning. Yeah, and that and that's one of the great things, by the way, that I love about having both of you on, and the, one of the things I love about the, the the book as well is that you have, you know, you you're able to bring both of those lenses. Um, and I think both of you have experience in both worlds, so don't sell yourself short on that. But but you de there's definitely like a nice balance there between research and practice. And I always said, I probably said on every single episode we do that I think that that's uh, a huge opportunity that we have is to continue bridging that gap and and having both sort of of those 
of those lenses represented. Um, I know as a teacher myself, I did not rely on the research as much as I should have because I was so busy in the weeds. Um, and I thought there was some ivory tower where people were making these decisions and never in schools. And you see situations like this where people are doing the work on both sides and it's just really refreshing and nice to hear. Um, so I, I can't help but think this, I guess, back to the practitioner side, that so much of this, what we're talking about, um, is about building and nurturing trusting relationships. Just same thing that we do with our students, right? Or that we attempt to do with our students. But it's so hard to find those times to build relationships during the hectic, busy school day. And I'm going to give you an example. Last week, I'm going to give you an example of the affordances that an organization like mine, Elevation, has that schools don't. I worked as a high school teacher for 17 years, and there were not a lot of times that I could get together with fellow teachers and just learn about them and get to know them and build relationships with them unless we did something on our own outside of school. Well, last week, Elevation, wonderful organization, we were all in Phoenix together, 200 of us, at a company offsite that was paid for by the organization so that we could, yes, talk about what our goals were, talk about our successes and our opportunities from 2022. But you know what? A huge part of it was for us to get to know each other so that we can work better together. And I couldn't help but say at the very end, when there was time to kind of reflect, I said, you know, I want everybody in the room to think about the teachers right now who are out there. They're just getting back from a super busy day. They don't have an opportunity to do the kind of thing that we did. So how can we, my, this is my question for you, like, how can we do that? How can we create an environment or create opportunities for teachers to build the relationships that they need to build so that they can collaborate without having that reluctance? I know that's a really difficult question to answer, but I have two really smart people on the Zoom right now, so I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> I I have to go back to Brene Brown also. And she says, trust is built bit by bit through small moments. And so even when we don't have these big opportunities to create you know, beautiful experiences where we're sharing hours and hours of time together, those small moments also create trust with one another. And in our classrooms, um, I remember specific times going into classrooms collaborating with my colleagues and it was just them knowing that I'm going to be there on time if I say I'm going to come to you I'm going to be in your classroom I'm going to meet with you I'm going to plan with you at this time on this date they can count on me that builds trust when when I say I'm going to bring resources or you can count on me to do this for this student or this parent I'm going to come to this parent teacher meeting that builds trust. Mm -hmm. Those small moments are important. And when we gather those little bits of small moments, they add up. Those small moments add up. And yes, I, you know, I love the personal fun times that we do. We talk about our, you know, personal lives or we share small moments about our our own selves. Those things come as well with with the times that, you know, I, I give my attention to coming on time and and delivering what I said I would deliver comes that personal touch as well. I, I'm going to say, you know, oh, my daughter had an event this weekend or congratulations on um, your birthday or the event you had. I'm going to remember what you told me last time. Those small moments gather and we build like a snowball. It continues to grow. 
the more trust we have with one another, it, it continues and builds. So I, I would say that, you know, small moments are just as valuable as those big. And some of those small moments could also take on a professional angle. And when Valentina and I last co-presented, we challenged our audience by assigning the following homework assignment to everyone, even though we're in no position to assign homework to anybody listening to this podcast. But our homework assignment to all of you out there is, drum rolls, is to professionally acknowledge, affirm, compliment the colleagues that you work with. Because there's not one teacher we have ever met who said, I can't take another compliment. No, thank you. <laughs> I agree with that. So yes, the, the birthdays, family members, details about our personal lives, remembering those and connecting with each other through those moments, build friendships. But when you also connect professionally and you recognize each other, how I appreciated the resources you shared in this chapter, Valentina, how we value your professional personal, professional, and collegial, as well as scholarly expertise. Now I gave Valentina a public compliment and affirmation that brings our relationship to a whole different level. It does. It makes you feel special. And when others hear it, it makes you feel even more special. And the more we do that, we continue to build trust and we build relationships. And Thank you so much, Andrea. I value you as well. And I appreciate that you trusted me with this work, honestly. And that, it, that forms a cycle, right? Somebody who hears that is more likely to do it uh, for someone else. And, and I should mention here, I think this is really important. I think in a school setting, that's going to trickle down to students as well. I remember some of my, I mean, I, you know, I like to think that I had some great lessons in my content area that my students and I will remember. But my my best memories, I had a, I have a just a little dear friend of mine who's a science teacher. I taught high school Spanish, totally different content, but we got to know each other fairly well because we started at the same time in the, the mentor program and everything else. And um, we would just walk into each other's rooms when we were walking by to say, "Hey, what's going on in here? What are you What are you up to?" And she'd come into my room and try to speak Spanish, and I'd go into her room and try to figure out what was going on in anatomy and physiology. And that was great for us and would talk about it and that kind of maintained our relationships. But to this day, I'll have students that I had 10, 15 years ago say, do you remember that time when you used to walk into Ms. Humili's room? And would I mean, that, that's such a great collegial thing that trickles down to students and it creates those wonderful memories and models the collaboration and the kind of um, professional and personal relationships that, that you're kind of discussing in this chapter. So I had to bring that up. So I think it's really important. I think it's a great point. And, and I'm, it reminds me of times that, you know, I've seen colleagues have that open door policy and that collegiality and also the opposite where I've had yeah. colleagues that had a very closed door policy and the vibe and energy that that sends out. And, you know, that speaks volumes. You, you hear it through many channels. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Thank you for bringing up the opposite as well, because I think that exists too. And those are the barriers that we need to begin to start to break mm -hmm. down. Um, so I want to get into a little bit about, you talk a lot about the value of teachers learning alongside one another. And although my content area was extremely different than Christy's content area, my friend who is a science teacher, 
I learned a tremendous amount from walking in her room just for two minutes at a time about how she organized her class and the relationships she built, et cetera. And I think that she learned from me as well. But this is not something that happens frequently. I had to seek it out. And I was really seeking it out more for social and fun, but I would learn along the way. So, I mean, specialists see this because they're in different people's room pretty fre- rooms pretty frequently. How would you recommend putting systems in place that allow educators to learn from one another without making this as key, without making them feel like they're being watched or judged or observed, which many of us feel, um, you know, as a result of kind of the dreaded evaluation and observation process that we've all gone through. So what what strategies can we put in place to make that happen more formally and more frequently? One strategy that I have supported and seen in a lot of schools is implementing some form of teacher intervisitation. And I'm avoiding the term observation because when, Steve, you invite me into your classroom, I'm not there in an evaluative, judgmental capacity. I'm there to support you, to give you those kinds of professional affirmations and to learn from you. So these intervisitations often um, happen informally or they could be very formally structured around peer coaching, peer visitations led by an instructional coach or maybe even an assistant principal. So these learning rounds have the purpose of offering teachers, inviting teachers into self-selected, teacher-directed professional learning opportunities. So it's not professional development, professional learning that's authentic, that happens in a job-embedded context. And initially it could be on a voluntary basis. You're not rounding up everybody and forcing everybody into everybody else's classroom. Mm -hmm. But once these activities take off, they could be transformational. I I totally agree. And I've had a lot of good experiences with conducting these types of learning walks on campuses, voluntary, just like Andrea said. But if evaluation is the only time teachers see another educator in the room, then, I mean, of course, there's going to be resistance with having other educators in your room. I loved being a specialist on campus because I did get to go into so many teachers' classrooms and just absorb all the goodness and take it back. Then I would take it back into all the other classrooms I would go into and share it. It was an amazing experience. It's the best type of professional learning anyone can ever get. But yes, as a specialist, I was getting that. And not every teacher did. So like Andrea said, the learning walk is so valuable when when we travel in groups on our own campus or visit another campus, you can pair up with a sister campus or a brother campus, whatever you wanna call it, pair up with another campus and visit classrooms through voluntary basis and have a specific lens for what you're looking for let them know what what you're looking for and then debrief that process we go into classrooms and just you don't have to be in there very long five minutes at the most in a classroom yeah yeah and then come out and debrief what did you see that was amazing we talk about the greatness what did you hear that was outstanding and we always just talk about the greatness and then when 
when other educators start hearing about like these learning walks were so amazing, I saw this, I saw that, they wanna be part of it too. And so even though it was voluntary, then everyone starts to wanna to volunteer for it. Sure. Yeah. You just need those few like um, early adopters or evangelists or whatever, or ambassadors, whatever, whatever word you want to call um, it. I think, um, what was the, inter what was the word that you used, Andrea? Inter intervisitation? Intervisitation. I love it. Yeah. Intervisitation. But I got that idea uh, from two or three structures that are out there already or have been out there. One is the famous pineapple chart. I don't mm -hmm. know, not every teacher that I ever mentioned that construct said they were familiar with this. So maybe some of your readers or listeners rather already have pineapple charts going around in their schools, some might not. So a pineapple chart is a weekly schedule that's usually posted or maybe even a monthly schedule outside a teacher's classroom. And it indicates certain days and certain periods where the teacher would invite others to come visit, maybe because you're dissecting a frog, or maybe you are doing something really exciting. The students are reporting on their um, inquiry circles and they're wrapping up a unit with something really exciting and they would want visitors to come. The other similar construct, which is very powerful, I'm not sure if it's still going on because COVID disrupted that structure, are ed camps or on mm -hmm. conference yep. that are put on usually on Saturdays by teachers, for teachers. So this for us, by us structure where teachers, educators, administrators, whoever participated came with a topic, a, a passion topic. Let's say I would have been talking about collaboration and anybody who wants to talk about collaboration, they would come into room 15 and gather up for 45 minutes. And the next 45 minutes, we go somewhere else because another educator is introducing technology um, tools, or maybe Valentina has a session on sketchnoting. And you have that expertise, you're ready to share. You did not have to prepare handouts and PowerPoint slides and all that, but it's that authentic collaborative conversation that is often critical to start good partnerships. I'm not overly familiar with the pineapple chart, but I, I had heard of it and I'm glad you explained it. But ed camps, I was I was a huge proponent of them. I organized many of them in my own school. And what I loved about them and what I tried to make sure that was a huge part of those was if you go to a session and five minutes in, you say, you know what, this isn't for me, no hard feelings, you walk out and you go to another one. Um, and what that does is it builds professionalism. Um, it builds uh, respect you know, of, of the time that, that you're taking and that you need it. It also builds... Um, I think a, a good rapport with teachers who really, really want to showcase their skills and show other people what they're doing, which is, which is great. And that in conjunction with kind of an open door policy at certain times, and then you have a recipe for success. Um, that's great. Um, okay. So I should say, and I mentioned this earlier and Andre, you mentioned this before we started, and I want to call it out that the, the book is a co-edited volume, which is interesting because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are different people writing different chapters about different things. And so we're talking now about Valentina's um, chapter about collaborating with reluctant teachers. Um, that makes it a really, really interesting piece because I feel like you could read it. I concentrated in this chapter, but you could kind of skip around and look at the ones that are most interesting to you and then go in any way you want. Um, and so, Valentina, in this particular chapter, one of the things that you wrote was um, was this, which is, I think, true, and I have a question after it. You said, some of the best collaborative practices I've experienced grew over multiple years and through many joint professional experiences. 
I could certainly relate to that. The relationship that I built with the teacher that I mentioned earlier did not happen overnight. It was a relationship that was built up before we could just walk into each other's rooms and kind of joke around and, and have some fun and also learn from one another. But I haven't been in the classroom in a long time. Um, and a lot has happened with the pandemic. And now there's a tremendous amount of teacher turnover, which is still happening. Um, so my question is, given all of that, the turnover and just the kind of lack of stability in education right now, is this long-term relationship building becoming more difficult? And if so, do schools have effective collaborative practices in place to retain more teachers? In other words, does that collaboration, in your mind, help with the retainment issues that we're seeing? I mean, it's a really good question. This the pandemic situation that we've gone through has affected education in so many different ways. And I think we are seeing it with collaboration, but there are a lot of different ways to collaborate. So it's not just a one way. Co-teaching is not the only way to collaborate. We can collaborate through technology. We can collaborate through small practices uh, like we've discussed throughout our talk today. And I do think that long-term collaborative practices, long-term relationships take time. Um, building that trust take, takes time. And for some of us, really collab building that trust and relationship um, may, like a long-term relationship may happen quicker than for others. It may be, you know, three months and suddenly we're fast friends and we're really cohesive together with planning. And for others, it takes you know a year or two for us to get in the groove and really understand how we work and who does what. Um, but I do believe that effective collaborative practices will help us retain more teachers overall because of that workload, because I'm gonna do some of the work, you're gonna do some of the work, we have ownership together. It's not just me alone. I'm not in this by myself, we're doing it together. And because of that feeling that I have you and you have me, we have each other, I think we, this will help us retain more teachers. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, it it just kind of, I don't think you need much on the research front to understand that when people feel comfortable and happy and respected and supported in their jobs, they're going to stay. And when the opposite is true, um, they're, they're not. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that because I, it was a bit of a devil's advocate question there, but I just wonder, and I don't have the you know, recent experience um, to see that happening in schools. I certainly hear about it a lot, but I appreciate your reaction there. Um, all right. So uh, there's, I want to do some kind of real talk here. Um, and I have, I have, uh, there's a couple quotes in your book. Anybody who's following along, it's on page 155 that I thought were really, um, well, I literally wrote on top of it, real exclamation point. Um, and, uh, You've actually put Valentina. You've put some some actual statements that you've heard from teachers that that challenge that uh, sort of collaboration and really um, heighten this reluctancy that we see. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read them. There's a let me see. There's one, two, there's four. I, I may read all of them. I don't know. We'll see how much time we have. I'm gonna read one, and then 
I want you to, to respond, to respond as if you were responding to me. So I'll, we'll kind of do a little role play here. Um, so I'm the sort of reluctant teacher. And then let's kind of see what your advice would be. And and Andrea and Valentina, you can feel free to both jump in. You, I know you've finished each other's sentences, so I'm not worried about stepping on each other's toes. Okay, so here we go. This is the first one. There's no reason to accommodate anything. Everyone will get the same instruction. So I actually remember hearing this from an educator and it was a very hard pill to swallow. It's, it's, it's one that really heightens my, um, I don't know. I, I feel like all of my blood begins to lizard, boil. Lizard, lizard brain goes into, it goes into. <laughs> and yeah. it, it makes me stop in my tracks and, and I just want to share everything with someone who gives this type of response. And I have to stop and I have to say, this is a teacher, when when I hear this statement, this is a teacher who may feel like if they give accommodations, they're being unfair. That they're giving someone an, an advantage. I have to stop and say to myself, this is a teacher who does want best for every child. I know this in my heart. I know that all teachers, I have to come to this assumption that all teachers want the best for the students in front of them. And so I have to pause and listen. And I have to ask, can you tell me more about this? Can you tell me more about why you think that a child who is acquiring English may not need accommodations. Tell me more about this situation. Tell me more about what's happening in the classroom and just listen. And then once I've heard everything and when I'm listening, I'm gonna smile. I have to really make sure that my, my body language is also delivering comfort so that the teacher can share what they're thinking, what is on their mind. And, and after they've given enough information, I've given them space to talk and share. Sometimes they also come to the realization on their own mm -hmm. that, hey, wait, wait a minute. Maybe I do need to accommodate. Maybe I do need to give more um, support to this child who's acquiring English. Sometimes they come to that realization before I even have to step in and provide more support. Valentina, you're very, very nice. I have taken very different approaches. Uh, let's hear it. Yeah, I'm curious. Well, your listeners can't see this, but I wear glasses now. So I take off my glasses. Is that fair? If you put something in front of me, I will not be able to read and I need glasses, and I don't know the exact statistics, but how many of us, how many students, how many adults, how many teachers wear glasses simply to be able to see clearly, to be able to decode, to be able to understand what's on the page. So if you're taking away that absolutely critical accommodation, you will never know what I can read and understand because I won't even get to that very first step of figuring out what's on the page. The second is a little more straightforward and it sounds like this. 
Hadd válaszoljak erre a kérdésre magyarul. <laughs> and then I go on a little bit in Hungarian and kind of shock people with that because very few people understand Hungarian. But would it be fair if I had the exact same excellent teaching happening that I'm able to offer in English, but now I'm going to offer that in Hungarian? So who is going to be, who is going to access that? Who is going to be accommodated? Who is going to be supported with that kind of teaching? So there are different ways to address this kind of challenging situation. And I'm not saying that Valentina is very thoughtful, very affirming, um, supportive approach would not be right. That is, there is a place for that. Those kinds of engaged conversations and thoughtful reflections are very important. Sometimes you can also just cut to the chase and show immediately the educator what the issue is. It also depends on the person you're speaking with. Yeah. With yep. some yeah. with some educators, that is exactly what I would do, what Andrea mentioned. And in some cases, that will just put someone over the edge. Mm -hmm. And so it depends on who you're talking with and, and you know that person. And you have to, just like the students we work with, we have to, we have to understand who we're discussing, who we're talking with and kind of gauge where they are and, and be reactive, proactive and reactive. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see all those strategies working, and it's exactly what you said, Valentina, depending on the person, right? And so I think, and, and by the way, one thing that I didn't mention before we got into this little role play was that this heading here is talk less, listen, and smile more, which I think is, I mean, you're just, just, to, just to kind of de-arm someone, right? Try not to make things get escalated when they don't need to. Um, and most people aren't watching this uh, on YouTube. They're listening to it. But Valentina, when you went through that, you were smiling. And Andrea, you're smiling too, even though your approach is a little bit different. I want to do one more because this is one that I hear that that is a tough one. And I hear it pretty frequently. If I spend time accommodating for a couple of ELs, I am taking away instructional time for all the other students. Well, Carol Salva says that language acquisition strategies are not one more thing, they are the thing. And I believe that firmly. And so if, if and I, I've had many teachers say this um, in a number of ways, either outright to me, um, when I was in the classroom, I've, I've had educators ask me this when I deliver professional learning um, and, the idea is that when we make instruction accessible to all of our learners, then to our multilingual learners, then all of our learners can engage. Accessibility features are around us everywhere in the world. I think about um, a building or a car. Accessibility features are there around us every day. When I get into a rental car, the first thing I do is adjust the seats and the mirror because mm -hmm. I'm short, I'm small, but I still have to see the road ahead of me. And thankfully, car designers realized that people are all different. They're different sizes, tall, small, big, wide, narrow, all of us are different. But the one thing we all need to see to do as drivers is see the road ahead of us. And the same goes for our students. We, all of our students need to see the grade level curriculum. They need to have access to that grade level curriculum. 
That's the road ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And we are the lesson designers. So we have to design the lesson for all of our students to have access to it. And that is what we're talking about here. When we design our lessons so that it's accessible for everyone, for our multilingual learners as well, then everyone can make adjustments so they can see the grade level curriculum ahead. Wait, that, that, that car metaphor is reminding me of a book I read uh, a few years ago called The End of Average by Todd Rose. I don't know if you all have read it. It's phenomenal. Usually I ask you for book recommendations and I will at the end, but I'm going to recommend this one, The End of okay. Average by Todd Rose. Um, it, it, I could go into a whole story, but it basically I won't spoil it, but he, he starts off, I think, the book talking about how um, he was talking about fighter pilots in the military and how they, 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 they figured out what the average person's sort of dimensions were. And then they they created the cockpit for that person, and it turns out that it didn't work for anybody. <laughs> so so it, this 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 premise of the end of that you can't do that. You have to design for everyone, and um, it really I think um, the the way you passionately explain that, Valentine, I think you really enjoy that book because it's it talks a lot about that, and it's really wonderful. Fits nicely into what we're talking about now. Um, Andrea, I don't know if you had anything to add there, but I wanted to make sure that you had an opportunity to add anything if you wanted to. I think Valentina mentioned this notion of universal design. So recognizing what we can do that support all students to become academic language learners. So redefining ELL or EML to ALL and considering that even your monolingual highly gifted student is going to be the learner of academic English, the learner of the disciplinary literacy features and genres from kindergarten all the way up to high school. So we need to recognize that language is the vehicle that carries the content, carries academic learning in every context. So we're supporting with many of our strategies, all of our students to develop proficiency, fluency, reasoning, analytical things, skills, and you need language to be able to do that. So that's another entry point to conversation around why we need to make sure that all students have access to complex academic language. Yeah, and absolutely. And we're actually getting into one of my last questions here, um, which is around the idea that many teachers um, might be reluctant to collaborate because they feel sort of inadequate when it comes to working with multilingual learners. It's not that they are like, oh, I don't want to do this. And, you know, I'd prefer to work with students who just speak English. It's that they just really feel inadequate. And I've known many of them. I didn't really have that situation because I taught foreign language, a bit of a different um, different content area. But I knew many of them who felt that way. And and what that, it's a, kind of a horrible feeling. Um, and it can lead to avoidance. It can lead to a lot of guilt, which then can lead to some anger. And so it's really emotionally charged. Um, and so my question is, how do we how do we break through that so that we can break down that kind of reluctancy and partner with teachers who, all of whom are really at some point, if they're not now, going to be working, going to have the pleasure and the and the excitement and the um and the delight of working with with multilingual learners, but they may not yet. So what do you recommend there? One way that I could think about this question is how to go from good to great that we all have every single educator that I've ever met, ever worked with. You have successful lessons, successful units, successful strategies, things that work really well. And you're very proud of those learning activities, those engagement strategies. So now 
let's try to deconstruct them and then reconstruct them, how they can further support language development or cultural or social emotional growth and development for our multilingual learners. So to see that a lot of the time, some of these strategies are already there or the seed is already there in that lesson and it could blossom, it could grow into a more linguistically, socially, culturally responsive practice. Sounds like take taking an asset-based approach with teachers, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> if we believe an asset-based approach for students, exactly. then why don't we why don't we borrow that exact same philosophy for teacher learning? Yeah. Yep, I agree. Valentina? I have to completely agree with Andrea. I mean, looking at what teachers are doing well and highlighting it, like she said earlier you know, complimenting and sharing that publicly, I think that goes a long way. Great. Okay, well, we're going to begin to wrap up. So I want to remind everybody that the book is called Portraits of Collaboration. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. Again, I'll just repeat that I had to go steal it from my wife's nightstand. So that's how you know it's good. Um, and, uh, uh, and I've really, really enjoyed the conversation I'd and we just kind of got into a little bit of this and obviously there are many more chapters about different topics. I'd love to know, um, how people can learn more about the work you're doing or the book, um, before we, before we call it a day here. Our Valentina designed a webpage, a website for this book which is connected to the Sidelitz Education website. So Valentina, you want to share more about that? Yes, absolutely. You can go on sidelitseducation.com and there's a tab for websites. The website is there. Lots of information about the book and resources on the book as well. And we'd love for you to visit it there. And you can find out more about me while you're on the Sidelitz Education website there. Um, and I'd love to connect with you all on Twitter at ValentinaESL.com. That's probably the best social media platform where you can find me. And I have a website um, for this book and all my other publications called AndreaHonigsfile.com. I'm also very active on Twitter, Twitter handle AndreaHonigsfile without the D. And um, I would be very happy to stay in touch with anybody who listens to this show. So we will link to all of those resources, social media and websites as well. Let me just say two things. One, when Valentina and Andrea say that they are willing to connect with people, they mean it. So they're, they're not everybody really has, I mean, I don't know how you have the time or capacity to do it, but you're always super responsive and something I really appreciate. That's number one. And number two, even if you don't directly connect, you both inspire me every day with the resources that you put out. Um, for free and that are available everywhere. This book is well worth buying, um, but there are so many other resources that come out, it seems like on a daily basis from one of you or both of you um, that are so, so useful. And it's it, it's really reaffirming in the work I do when I get to talk with people like you who are doing such great work uh, on behalf of multilingual learners and the teachers who are serving them and the teachers who will serve them and the teachers who maybe are reluctant to collaborate with others right now, but won't be very soon as soon as they read this book. So much, much appreciated. Last question for you both. I already gave a book re recommendation, The End of Average, 
by Todd Rose. I also recommend Portraits of Collaboration, which I read the chapter of uh, that we that we just discussed. But I'd love to hear what you're reading right now. What's on your bookshelves? You're both kind of prolific readers and consumers of information. Would you recommend anything to to listeners? I okay. I'm going to recommend a couple of things. Of course, First you are. All, it's never just one. Everybody <laughs> wants to list a few things. I know. I know. You go ahead. Okay. You've earned that privilege. Okay, so. <laughs> I really got into listening to podcasts because of Tom's podcast. And now I listen to many podcasts, one of which is Brene Brown's podcast, um, Dare to Lead. And through her podcast, I found inclusion on purpose. It's by Ruchika Tulshayan. And I love it. And I highly recommend it. So inclusion on purpose. Do you have it? Steve? I'm, I'm, you you're it? seeing okay. me looking at my bookshelf. I do have it. I wish I could show it to you, but it's not here. It's somewhere else. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to just recommend that book, but I just wanted to tell you how it led up to that book from Tan's podcast to Brene. And I read a lot of Brene Brown's books also. I love her work. I love her research and all of her work too. And that's how it led me to inclusion on purpose. Amazing. Yeah, it's a great book. I, I, it's, we read it actually as part of a, um, an elevation. It's phenomenal. I'm glad you read it. And I would like to recommend Jenny Donahue's book on collective efficacy. Jenny is a Canadian researcher, practitioner, presenter who so successfully translates complex research ideas and John had his findings into accessible publications. So it's a shout out to Jenny and everybody else who tries to make sense of what's out there in the professional literature to bridge that uh, theory to practice work that's so important for us. Oh, you ended on such a high note for me, bridging the gap between research and practice that I've already mentioned today and I mentioned all the time. And that sounds like a book that I need to read because I am guilty of having a really hard time with some of the highfalutin research stuff. I need it to be broken down. So it's Jenny, what's the last name? Donahue, D-O-N-O-H-O-O. -O -O. I okay. hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. We will, uh, we will link to those books as well in the show notes, and there'll be a blog post for this episode as well. And um, with that, I want to thank you both for coming on again. I have a feeling, if it's okay with you, it won't be the last time, but, um, but I really always appreciate the collaboration and um, hope you all... Have a wonderful end of your week. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.